Father, thank you. You invite us to come to you in prayer, to, to enter into relationship with you, that, that you, the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe, is wanting to enter into friendship with us. Lord, open our hearts to this today, I pray. Expand our conceptions of you in a way that excites us, in a way that, that gives us a, a more beautiful picture of who you are and that inspires us for the journey ahead. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So they decided to do a study. It was actually an architect who did this study, but, but they decided that they wanted to experiment with some preschool students. Now, you are older than preschool students, but I want you to imagine, see if you can tell me what it is that you think caused the results of this study. So, what they did was they took a preschool teacher and her students and they took them to a playground. And the preschool students, what do you think they would do at the playground? Play. They would have fun. They'd run around, explore the playground. Well, here's what happened. The, the, the preschool students all stuck really close to their teacher. And they just, they were, wherever the teacher would go, they would go. And, and they just didn't want to get too far away from the teacher. Is that what you do at recess? Not so much, yeah. I, was, I, was, I think I've watched that. So then, another day, they went to a different playground. And now, see if you can tell the difference between these two playgrounds. When they went to the second playground, and they went out to play, suddenly, the kids were going everywhere around the entire playground. Not just on the play structures, but they went to the very corners of the playground, all around the playground. Can anybody guess what the difference was between the first playground and the second playground. Anybody want to guess? Any guesses? What do you think was the difference, Kendall? So they wanted to be with the, the teacher in the first one. Yeah. The second playground, what do you think happened? Then they wanted to play everywhere. That was the difference between the two. Do you any idea what might have caused that? What do you think, Gunner? Maybe it wasn't as nice of a playground. That's a good idea. What do you think, Elizabeth? Oh, maybe the second one, she was check- the, the teacher might have been checking on them to make sure what was going on. These are really good guesses. I don't know if you had any other guesses, but here was actually what was taking place. You remember who I said was doing this study? It was an architectural study, and they were studying... Fences. How exciting is that? You you ever do a study on fences? Well, so what they did was they took them to the one playground, (coughs) and at the first playground, (coughs) there was no fence. What happened with the kids? The kids stuck to their teacher. The second playground, they took them to that playground, and they put a fence, this, this playground had a fence around it, and the kids felt free to explore the entire place. Now, what are fences? Aren't these just oppressive, restrictive barriers that keep us from having fun? They keep us from getting into places. Aren't barriers just there to take away our fun? Well, that's not what the kids thought. The kids felt free. They felt secure. They felt like they could trust. They felt like they were secure. So here's the thing. Uh, Some of you are joining us for the first time, but we've been going through something called the three angels messages in Revelation chapter 14. And We're getting to the point in Revelation 14 that maybe you've heard this verse before. 
verse 12, points out this group of people in the end who stand through all the chaos that comes on this planet. And this is how they're described. Revelation 14 and verse 12 says this, here is the patience of the saints. And last week we talked about patience and we compared it to another word. You remember the word? Endurance. And we talked about the incredible endurance event that all of you are going on each and every day. In fact, you're, you're participating in it right now. Are you feeling exhausted the last seven days? I'll remind you of that here in just a minute. But here is the patience, the endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So we're going to look at this. Here are those who keep the commandments of God. Now, what do you think when you think the commandments of God. Does that sound like, ah? <laughs> what do you think of when you think of rules? When you think of laws? Sometimes we think of restriction. We think of oppressiveness. We think of those types of things. What's the picture in the Bible? Well, in fact, there's a group of people who thought of the law in a similar way. Let's look back at when the commandments that this is referring to were given. So, If you look in Revelation chapter 11, it gives us this key uh, phrase that that reveals the inner sanctuary of the most holy place, and it says that there is the Ark of the Covenant was seen there, and that is the place where God's law was, the Ten Commandments, and who were the Ten Commandments given to? Do you you kids know? You probably know. Who who received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai? Gunner. Moses, right? So let's go back and look at the story of Moses real fast. So in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 7, it says, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. So as he went and and brought the commands to the people, notice what they say. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to do exactly what God tells us to do. We're going to follow his commands. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? And, and, and it's a, obviously if God's commands are for our good, that, that seems like a good intent. But we'll see what happens shortly. Now, kids, I have a question for you. What was the very first commandment? What's the first of the Ten Commandments? Do you remember? Make an idol? That's really close. I think that was the second one. Any other, anybody remember in the back there? You shall not lie. That's a really, another really good guess, right? Honor God. Yeah, you should have no other gods. That's usually what people answer. That the first commandment starts with, you shall have no other gods before me. But watch this. It actually doesn't start with that. Did you know that? Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 says this. This is when God begins to give the Ten Commandments. This is the first part of the Ten Commandments. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This is how the Ten Commandments starts. It starts by saying, I took you, I saw that you were slaves and that you were helpless in Egypt and that you couldn't save yourself. And you remember when he came and he sent Moses there and, and Moses begins to try to set them free and Pharaoh says, well, I'm going to put more oppression on you. And they go to Moses and they're like, just, just leave us alone. Leave us as slaves. We just want to stay here. And God refused. <laughs> He's like, I'm taking you out of Egypt. I'm, gonna, I'm going to rescue you. You don't even know it's for your own good. 
I'm going to rescue you out of this bondage. And so even though the Israelites didn't even want to go, God sent plague after plague and he ended up pulling them out. It was as if he had to grab them by the hand and drag them out of Egypt. So he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I set you free. That's the context of the Ten Commandments. Because right after that it says, you shall have no other gods before me. I set you free. Now stay free. Here's the path of your freedom. Here is the direction of your freedom. So then God goes through and he gives all the Ten Commandments, those commandments that we find out that the people in the end, they're, they're keeping the commandments. Now, what, is, what does the word keep mean? It's, it's similar to the word to guard, to watch out for. They're, they're watching over. They're, they're, they're being aware of this law. So Notice what happens in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 18. After the Ten Commandments are given, it says this. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. How do they feel about commandments? Scared. Like, let's go as far away as we can. Let's stay a long ways away from whatever's happening up there. We don't want the people trembled and they stood afar off. They wanted nothing to, they didn't want to get too close to what was happening there. We'll do it, God. We'll do what you said, but don't get too close. We don't want to get too close to you. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. God is, he's out to hurt us. He doesn't have our best in mind. He isn't trying to help us here in what he's doing. And we don't want to get too close to God because he might hurt us. This was the attitude that the Israelites had. And you can't blame them in a way. I mean, where had they just come from? What were they in Egypt? Slaves. They're used to a taskmaster with a whip. And and they're used to just doing what he says. And there's no relationship there. There's a relationship of fear. There's a relationship of, I'm going to beat you if you don't do what I say. They're used to a a slave-taskmaster relationship. And and that's how they're treating what God has come and brought to them. So then it goes on to say in verse 21, So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses goes to where God is. But the people, they stay as far away as they can. They don't want to be near God. So, so here's the, the first lesson for us as we look at, at those who keep the commandments of God. Because what happened to the Israelites within 40 days? What are they doing? Are they keeping the commandments like they said they were going to do? They're dancing around a golden calf. They have this massive party and they say, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. And they've already broken the first three commandments within 40 days, within one month. It didn't work out so well for them. Good intentions, but based upon fear rather than love. So notice uh, what I think a principle that comes out here. Rules without relationship result in rebellion. If we're just going to talk today about let's be a people who keep the commandments of God and we don't have a relationship with that God, we don't know that God for ourselves, we don't know that he's good, that he has our best in mind, then we're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to be able to follow through. It's going to result in rebellion as good as our intentions might be, as much as we might know about those commandments, we could know them inside and outside. But if we don't know God himself as a God of wonder, as a God of love, a God who cares about the details of our life. It's just going to result in rebellion. It's the reality. 
So notice later on, when Moses comes down in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29, it says, Now it was, so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and he had the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Now, Moses comes down from the mountain, and it says that, that his appearance, there's something about him that's radiant, that's glowing. There's the, the glory from God has, is reflecting from Moses. As he comes down and he's shining with this, notice what happens. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses, now they're afraid of Moses because Moses is, is too much like God, and, and we don't want to get near him. We're afraid of Moses himself. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses actually took a sheet or a veil and he, he drapes it over his face. Can you imagine what it's like? Your, your leader there, your, your president in the wilderness there, he's walking around and anytime he's talking to you, he's got this veil over his face because everybody's afraid of him otherwise. Except for when he goes back into God's presence, then he takes that veil off. But then he puts the veil back over his face, and, and you're asking him for instructions. You're saying, where are we going to go next? What are we going to do next? And he's got a veil over his face. You see, these people didn't want to really get to know God. And the natural result of that is rebellion. Now Moses... Uh, This story of Moses having the veil over his face is picked up by Paul in the New Testament to to give us a picture of what the purpose of Jesus' coming was all about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14, this talking about the Israelites, Paul says, but their minds were what? Their minds were blinded. What were they blinded to? They were blinded to the reality that When Moses asked God, show me your glory, he said, I'll let all of my goodness pass before you. God's glory that shone like that was his goodness, his mercy, his love, as he described his glory to Moses. But their minds were blinded. They didn't see God as a God of love. They didn't see him as a God of goodness. Their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Have you ever read the Old Testament and said, wow, This God here, I don't know what's going on here. Let's go read the New Testament and let's look at Jesus because that's scary. Well, Paul tells us that when we read the Old Testament like that, the reason that we're seeing that is because we've got a veil over our hearts. We're blinded to who God really is. But then notice what it says, because the veil is taken away in what? In who, I should say? In Christ. In Jesus. When Jesus came and he became human flesh, and you have God on earth walking among his people, what were some of the things that Jesus was doing for people? We talk a lot about Jesus in our chapels, don't we? What do you girls, or, or boy, think, or boys, I should say, what, what are some of the things that Jesus did? When Jesus was here walking among people, what did he do? Elizabeth. He healed the lame. So if somebody, Jesus couldn't pass by somebody who was lame and not heal them. Gunner, you're going to say the same thing? He healed a lot of lame people, didn't he? He healed the blind people. He healed the lepers. He healed, he couldn't pass by a widow's train who had her, her dead son passing out of a city without raising that boy from the dead. 
He couldn't go to church and, and see that man with a, a withered hand in the synagogue, even though it was Sabbath and they were going to condemn him for healing that person. He couldn't pass by a hurting person without healing them. And then he says, if you've seen the, me, you've seen the Father. This is who God is. Some people say, I like Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the Father. I'm not so sure about the Old Testament. The reality is that that is who God is. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God's character to humanity. And so when we come to Christ, when we come to Jesus, the veil is taken away and we begin to have, have our eyes open, our mind is, is, is clear to see what's going on here. Now, Romans chapter 10, Paul describes something here about what the purpose of the law was. He said, for talking about the Jews, the Israelites, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. That's, that's his holiness, his perfection. And ultimately, that's his love because God is love. And seeking to establish their own righteousness, their own type of love, their own perfection, notice what they missed, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They, they said, everything that God has said, we're going to do it. And that didn't work so well for them. Notice what it goes on to say. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this is good news. Jesus is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Hang on a second. Didn't I just say that there's a group of people in the end who keep the commandments of God? And now you're telling me that Jesus is the end of the law? Yeah, exactly that. That he is the end of the law. We have to look at what the, the word end is. End is the word telos in Greek. Can you say telos? Telos. Can you think of a word that sounds a little bit like telos? telescope perfect so what does a telescope do you look into the end of a telescope so that you can look off in the distance and see uh, an object that is far away christ is the, the the focal point of all of scripture all of the law all of it was leading us to jesus when we come to jesus we see what the law is all about because Jesus perfectly kept the law of love in all of his actions with every human being. The purpose of the law is human flourishing. We see that when we see Jesus. We see that Jesus couldn't pass by somebody that was hurting without helping them. He couldn't pass by somebody without encouraging them, without raising the dead. And Jesus revealed to us what humanity is designed to be. He revealed to us that, that we're to be created in the image of God, that that God's law is just a transcript of his character that he wants to implant in us so that we too become loving just like Jesus loved. Last week we said that the, the third angel's message basically tells us that in the end, God's going to have a people who love like Jesus loves. Isn't that good news? <laughs> Would you like to be a part of that people? How many of you like to love like Jesus loves? I would love to be able to do that, to be able to, to heal, to be able to be there for people, to, to minister to them, to care for them like Jesus did. Now, let's keep going here and we'll look at uh, 2 Corinthians three fourteen continues. But their minds were blinded, but the veil is taken away in Christ, we saw. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. So when they, they read Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible from Genesis through Deuteronomy. When they read those books, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, this is the people who cherished the Torah. 
They, they were people who memorized it, who did everything possible to keep the 613 laws that are recorded there. But there's a veil over their heart. They don't see that it's not about a taskmaster asking them for hoops to jump through, but it's about a God of love describing the path for their freedom. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You see, it's, it's in Christ that is taken away. It's when we turn to God that the veil is taken away and we begin to see things clearly. Now, you can understand this a little bit better by looking at Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. It says this, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Talking about God's goodness, his forbearance, and long-suffering, his patience with us, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. You see, we, we turn towards God because of his goodness. As we recognize who he is in character and nature, as we see that he's a God of infinite love who only has our best in mind, who cares about the details of our life, we begin to be able to turn and open up towards God and we stop being closed off and blinded towards who God is. You know, think about it like this. These are my sweet little girls. I really want for them to obey my commands. And you know, as they get older, I think one of my commands is going to be, do not smoke. Right? This is something I just want you not to do. Now, now tell me what you think will be most inspiring to them. If, if I never give them any reason for why smoking might be harmful for their lives, that it might cause them lung cancer and the, the difficult things that it might do to their lives, and, and just a pause here, this is not to be hard on smokers this morning. I'm just using one of a myriad of examples. But I don't really want that for my children. Is that understandable? I don't want them to experience that. But, but if, I, if I just tell them, if I ever catch you smoking... I'm going to get you. <laughs> you better watch out. What type of, of reaction do you think they're going to have to that? Well, let's just go smoke around the corner where he can't see. Because just as so long as dad can't see, we're okay. And sometimes we have this picture of God and we think, all I have to do is if I realize that, that he's going to get me if I do the wrong thing, then that's, that's what's going to be the inspiration inside of me. But friends, that doesn't motivate. Fear does not work in solving our problem of sin. It doesn't fix things. But if instead I sit them down and I say, look, Abby, Livy, here's the deal. I love you so much. And I just... I care about your life. I want you to have a happy life. So I hope that you'll, you'll consider listening to what I'm going to say to you. It's really important. Don't ever pick up a cigarette. Here's why. Because studies show this, it'll reduce your lifespan by about this amount. And, and it, it'll cause lung cancer. And it'll, it'll make these difficulties for you. And, and if I can share that with them, do you think that they might be a little bit more inspired that, that this is the direction that they want for their lives? Versus if I simply tell them, this, don't let me catch you, you'll be in big trouble. See, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When we realize who God is, that, that he's not withholding anything from us. The very first lie that was told in the Garden of Eden that got Adam and Eve to sin was, God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit. God had said, hey, you can eat of all the trees of the garden, but just don't go to this one tree. Trust me in this relationship. But Eve goes to that tree and the serpent says, did God really say you can't eat of all these trees? And 
She says, well, he didn't say all of them, but he, he did say, I can't eat of this one or I'm going to die. And Satan says, no, you're not going to surely die. In the day that you eat of it, you're going to become like God. God is selfish. He's holding something back from you. He really doesn't have your best in mind. You can't trust him. That is the root of rebellion, of sin, of anything in my life that leads me in the wrong direction. So then it goes on to say, notice this. Now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. How many of you like liberty? Some of you, I'm going to get you to raise your hand by the end here. How many of you like freedom? (laughs) How many of you are glad to live in the United States? Freedom is an amazing thing. Right, so here's the thing. For, for somebody that doesn't understand what the law of God is about, try this. Say, if you love freedom, then you love the law of God. You just might not know it yet. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And notice what James goes on to say, verse, chapter 1 and verse 25, the perfect law of liberty. He encourages us to look into it like a mirror. He says, look at this perfect law of liberty. The, the law that sets us free. Is that really true? I want to propose something to you this morning. So think about it like this. In general, sin appears to give us more choices in life. Is that sometimes true? All right. Let's consider it like this. Sin tells me I can have as many women as I want. Right? So it's this, this wide opening. But I want to tell you today that, that sin starts with this wide open door. But it becomes restrictive. It begins to burden our lives. It begins to take away our freedom in the end. In the end, I can choose to, to pick up that cigarette and I can choose to think I have this amazing freedom. But when it shortens my life, when I'm having trouble breathing, when, when things are going on in my life, I begin to realize that ah, it actually restricts my freedom. Now, the law, when we come to the law, it looks like this this narrow way. Like, wait a second. Imagine this craziness. I come up to Leah and I say, you know, I know there's a lot of men out there, but I want you to spend the rest of your life with me. Will you marry me? And she's thinking, just him? I mean, I could have lots of, do I really need to live by the law? I mean, there's, why can't I have a bunch of husbands? Thankfully, she didn't think that, but... I mean, isn't it restrictive? Doesn't it take away our freedom to get to enjoy life? You know, here's another example. There is an entrepreneur who, in his early days, he, he decided he wanted to do whatever it took in order to make a lot of money. And so he followed what you might call a win-lose model of business. And so when he interacted with people, it, whatever it took in order to make as much money as possible, he, he'd charge you the highest price possible. He didn't care if the product wasn't good enough for you. All he cared about was making sure that he made a good profit. But pretty soon, what do you think begins to happen to his customers? (laughs) They lose trust. (laughs) They're like, yeah, we can't trust that guy. He lies about his products. He charges us exorbitant prices. And his business did not do so well. Then he read Stephen Covey's book on the seven habits of highly effective business, where it describes never having a deal that is not win-win. And he began to practice this where his product, he made it the best possible to be able to satisfy people in the best possible way and make, give them the best possible price. And what do you think people began to do? They began to flock to him and he began to become a successful businessman because they could trust him. 
You see, God's law is designed to do that in every area of our life. It's designed to to create human flourishing. It's designed to enable us to have better relationships. It's designed to give us freedom. Psalm 119.32 describes it this way, I run in the path of your commands. Now, can you run in a room that's five five feet across in in solitary confinement? Can you run inside of solitary confinement? It's this picture of a, a broad space. I run in the path of your commandments, for you have set my heart free. You've given me liberty because I am going in the direction of your commandments. So the psychologist by the name of Jennifer Jill Schweitzer says this. She says, science says that intercourse experienced in the context of a bonded relationship brings more pleasure than casual intercourse. Is that true? i.e. prolactin responsible for feelings of satisfaction is 400% higher in bonded versus solo intercourse. Do you know that? So, so when there's a, a commitment, when there's a relationship there that, that is, is long and committed. In fact, I, I, wasn't, I was a little skeptical of this and I went and actually looked up online and there's actually manuals about stuff like this, I guess. And, and they say that after 15 years of a committed relationship, you're going to experience the best possible satisfaction in a marriage or, or in a relationship specifically on, on this level. Jennifer Jill is a Christian. She goes on to say this, God wants us to have more pleasure, not less. It may seem like, yeah, I'm just going to go around and find every girl possible and I'm going to go have a, a party. But the reality is science shows that that is not as satisfying as entering into a relationship with somebody that is long-lasting, where trust is built, where you begin to see the ins and outs of each other in such a way that you love each other no matter what. There's freedom in that. There's joy in that. Now, this is talking about a, a healthy relationship. If you haven't experienced that, um, keep coming to Jesus because his love can transform a marriage to be something that is satisfying. The law is something that gives us freedom. It gives us liberty. Now, the Lord is a spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, no, notice what it goes on to say. But we all with unveiled face. What language is that using? Again, it's, it's talking about the veil that's over their heart. So it says, we have an unveiled face when we turn to the Lord, when we recognize who he is. And turning towards him, we behold him with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're not asking for that veil to, to, to hide God from, we're not asking for distance from God anymore. We're wanting closeness to God. We're, we're wanting to know him. And, and when we gaze and gaze at his glory, notice what happens in our own hearts. It says, in our being transformed into the same image from his glory to that glory being reproduced in us, just like it was shining from the face of Moses, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes to us, Jesus told us that the Spirit would come as the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of God, you're right. The Spirit of truth. He comes by revealing things to us. And Jesus also said that he comes to magnify or let us know who Jesus is. As the Holy Spirit comes and and expands our understanding, our conception of of who God is and his goodness to us, that he cares about our life in such a way that he would never withhold anything good from us, 
Suddenly, our hearts begin to, to beat with a new beat. We begin to have a new motivation. We begin to want to live in the path of his commandments because we recognize that God is love. Rules without relationship result in rebellion. But rules with relationship result in freedom. Let's try that again. Rules with relationship result in freedom. It sets us free. You're free to live a life of love in Christ. Now, notice how Jesus describes what he wants his disciples to go on, this journey that he wants them to go on. We looked at this first verse last week when we talked about how to endure in love, to continue loving people even when we're facing hostility, when people are mistreating us to the very end. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Stay in my love, Jesus says. Now watch this. He's going to take them on a journey to understand how to go from what the Israelites were experiencing, where they wanted distance from God, where they were in this taskmaster slave experience with God, and to bring them to another relationship. He says, as the fathers loved me, that eternal ongoing love that, that was knew no boundaries and limits throughout the, the past, through, it's, it's immeasurable, incomparable. That love is the same love that God feels towards you. Because as the fathers love me, I've loved you in that same way. So abide. Just, just stay in that love. Remain there. Don't doubt it. Don't question it. Don't, don't let anything get in the way of you constantly absorbing my love. Continue to go time and time again to the Bible and say, God, would you reveal to me your love? I need to drink in this steady diet of your love to recognize the love that knows no boundaries. We love because he first loved us. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So sometimes we read that as, well, if we muster up enough courage to be able to keep the commandments, then we'll be able to stay in his love. But notice what he said just the chapter before in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, what's the promise? You will keep my commandments. If you enter into relationship, to closeness with me, as you come close to me, as you get to know me, as you get to love me and trust me, the fruit of that, I've set you free and you're going to stay free. The fruit of that is that you're going to begin to keep my commandments. And that's incredibly good news because of what the commandments entail. But let's look at this. This is from a book, Christ Object Lessons, that talks about the parables of Jesus. Notice what it says. God works, good works do not purchase the love of God, but they reveal that we possess that love. So, so when I'm doing good actions, when I'm loving people, it simply reveals that the love of God is in me. If we surrender the will to God, we will not work in order to earn God's love. We won't think we've got to do a certain amount of things and then God will love us. We'll recognize that God loves us and therefore we can do good things. His love is, as a free gift, will be received into the soul. From love to him, we shall delight to obey his commandments. How many of you would like to have delight in following Jesus? Have joy that his yoke really is easy. His burden is light. First John 5.3 says, this is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. <laughs> they're light, they're easy. As you fall in love with Jesus, as you enter into a relationship, it becomes not burdensome, it becomes easy, it becomes delightful. Now, 
I think you may appreciate this more than you realize. Romans chapter 13, verse 10, Paul, after having listed various of the Ten Commandments, says this, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Imagine your relationships. Imagine your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your spouse, with your neighbor, with your coworker. Imagine if in that relationship you had never done any harm in that relationship, never said a, a, a word that would damage the trust in that relationship, that there was no harm ever done. We all long for this. At the core of who we are, we long to love on a level that never hurts any other human being. And friends, I want to tell you, that's a longing for the law of God. That's a longing to keep, to guard, to cherish his commandments, to value relationships, to care about people in our lives. This is something that God has instilled in us, and we recognize the value of self-sacrificing love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. Just as, notice how he goes on to say, I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. He, he's not like the president who says, you know, I have presidential immunity. I'm not talking about this president or the past president or any president in particular, but I'm saying that the president has special privileges, right? God says when it comes to the law, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is a transcript of my character. So Jesus says, you keep the commandments just as I perfectly kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Now notice why he tells us this. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Did you know that people that love are the happiest people on the planet? The people with the most fulfilling relationships, whether they're rich or poor, they're the happiest people on the planet. It's what we all long for. And your joy will be full when you keep his commandments, when you guard them, when you recognize that this law of love is what he wants to reflect in you. The reality is that when rules are based on a relationship, there's joy in following his commandments. The Desire of Ages describes it this way. It's page 668. It says, All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. Jesus pointed this out. He said, Out of the abundance of the heart, he didn't speak it exactly like that, but, but that was the, the concept he gave. It comes murders, comes lying, those different things he pointed out come from the heart itself. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. This is what Psalm chapter 40 says is, I delight to do your will, oh my God. This is what it means in the new covenant that he'll write his law on our hearts. God is looking for impulsive obedience. Is that good news? He's not looking for you to muster up enough courage to change the outside. And while you're hating a person, you're treating them with love in your actions. He's looking for those loving actions to create in you a love that genuinely wants to do good to that person. He's not wanting you just to grit your teeth and go through life. And you know, sometimes people look at Christianity as like, oh, there's just a bunch of rules I got to figure out how to follow. No, it's the, the one place that I believe that we can come and find that we have nothing to offer. 
but that God wants to do it all in us. That he wants to lead us to delight to do what the whole world wants to do, and that is to experience love. The will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing a service. Jesus said, I've written these th- I'm saying these things so that your joy may be full. You want to be joyful? Be one of those that keeps the commandments of God. That you can find your highest delight in doing a service when we know God as it is our privilege to know him. When we, when we turn to God, when we recognize who he is, his goodness, that he's always on our side, always doing us good, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, opening our hearts to him as to a friend. Sin will become hateful to us. That, that's the gospel, that, that we're going to so enjoy loving people that, that to hurt somebody, to harm somebody in any possible way, whether it's emotionally, physically, any way, is going to become the most hateful thing in our minds. Rules with relationship result in joy. Is that really possible that rules can result in joy? Those children on the playground enjoyed it more fully because they recognized the boundaries that were there around the playground that were keeping them safe. This is my commandment, Jesus goes on to say, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now notice this, no longer do I call you what? No longer do I want you to have that, that experience that you had at Mount Sinai where you were saying, Moses, you go and talk to him. We'll do what he says, but we don't want to get too close to him. Just stay away from us. Be like a taskmaster. We'll be your servants. We'll follow you. He says, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. The God of the universe wants to be your friend. Is that incredible or What? For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Friends, what we need is what we started to talk about last week, a Copernican shift. We need a a transformation where it's, it's not about finding a people in the end who have mustered up the strength and courage to be able to keep the law. The law, the end of the law is Christ. The whole purpose is to lead us to Jesus and to love like Jesus loved. So you remember that endurance event that I told you about that you were doing? You see, those of you who weren't here last week, you may not realize this, but you are currently traveling at 66,616 miles per hour. Did you know that? Are you tired? Feeling a, you wondered why you were aching a little bit, why your muscles are sore. You're doing this incredible thing that's called an orbit around the sun, and you're going at 66,616 miles per hour around the sun. Day in and day out. But here's the thing. As you go around the sun, and last week we talked about how Jesus is to be at the center of it all, that Paul inspired us to endure by looking to Jesus, by looking and looking and looking. Behold the Lamb of God. And we just saw how he again says to the Corinthians, it's by beholding that we're transformed. It's by looking to him. It's not by figuring out all of our sins. It's by looking to him and that stuff will become clear and we'll turn more and more away from it because we're turning to the light. And the sun has this amazing gravitational pull that, did any of you lose your car this past week off the planet or your house or your kids? They're still, I assume they're still here on this little ball. 
float they're still there. The sun has this amazing ability to keep us in this orbit going around the sun. And we learned that if you were on Venus, you would be going a whole lot faster around the sun because the closer you are to the sun, the faster that you're able to go as you allow his gravitational pull. But we also talked about there's people that are pretty crazy now who are figuring out, hey, I could pay hundreds of thousands of dollars and I could get off this planet. And if you build a big enough rocket, you could get off of planet Earth and you could exit the orbit around the sun. If you really were that determined, you could get going fast enough to exit the orbit around the sun. It is possible and you would no longer be going at 66,000 miles per hour. But here's the incredible thing. You see, we've learned here this Copernican shift that the the sun is at the center, (laughs) that Jesus has to be everything for us. His friendship, that's all that matters to us. Jesus has to be everything. (laughs) But I'm so excited to tell you this today, okay? I don't know how to contain it because here's the deal. I was holding out on you last week. I didn't tell you half the story. I told you a lot less than half the story because you see, here we are rotating around the sun. And and so long as earth stays in orbit around the sun, and, and each year we go 584 million miles orbiting around the sun, and we feel like, hey, we're staying with the sun. But isn't that restrictive? I mean, do we really have to just go around and around in a circle around the sun all the time? I mean, does it just really have to be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? Is that, is that really the only way? Isn't his law restrictive? If I stay here, isn't that going to keep me? Uh, I don't know. That just doesn't sound like fun. Here's the deal. Check this out. Look at where we are. You see that? That's where we estimate that we are. That's our place in the Milky Way galaxy. And here's the thing. You know what we're doing? We're not just traveling at 66,000 miles per hour. We're traveling at 515,000 miles per hour as an entire solar system as we go around the Milky Way. They estimate it takes about 282 million years to be able to make one orbit around the Milky Way. Not sure how we figure that exactly, but these are estimates, broad estimates. But, but here's the deal. So I told you last week that in one year, you go 584,000 million miles. Actually, I have to correct. Last week, I used some wrong figures, so pay more attention this week. 584 million miles in one year. But you know what we're actually doing as a solar system in one year? We're traveling 4.5 billion miles through the Milky Way. Because we're sticking with the sun, we're in orbit around the sun, we are going on a more massive journey than we could even comprehend. In my 36 years, I told you last, last week that I've gone about 21 billion miles. It's no wonder I'm starting to feel a few aches and pains at 36 years old. But here's the thing. I didn't realize that it's far more than that. Not just 21 billion miles, but the, our solar system in the time that I've been alive, we estimate has gone about 162 billion miles through the solar system. That's further than those of you who are over, over 100 years old in, in your orbit around the sun. How many of you are above 50? You don't have to raise your hand to that one. No, just checking. All right, so those of you that are over 50, you've gone 225.7 billion miles. Over 80, 361 billion miles. Have you broken a sweat? You've been staying, you've been remaining where you belong. As the Father has loved you, Jesus, as, as the fathers love Jesus, 
He says, I've loved you. Remain in my love. If you just stay in my gravitational attraction, trust me. I'm going to take you on a journey that's far bigger than you can ever imagine. I'm going to lead you to love the world in a way that you never expected. It's so much bigger and grander than anything that you can fathom. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you'll only fix your eyes on Jesus. Psalm 84 says it this way. For the Lord God is a son and shield. He's got a, a gravitational attraction in your life that it's going to be hard for you to pull away from. You can work hard to get away from God, but his love will be constantly reaching out to you. And if you know anything about gravity, it's still grabbing a hold of you. Even if you are heading away from the sun, it's still going to be chasing you with its gravity. It's the same with God's love. He will never stop loving you no matter where you are, no matter where you go. The Lord will give grace and glory. He's going to continue doing everything possible to do good in your life. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The more that we get to know that, the more when he whispers something to us through the Holy Spirit, the more when we read something in our Bibles, the more instantly we'll say, I'm going to do it because I know he's got my good in mind. I know that he only wants what's best for me. I'm not going to do anything except for what he says because I know he's so incredibly good that he's watching out for what is best in my life. He's not one that comes up with arbitrary laws and rules. It's not like he made those 10 commandments, but he could have said instead to them, like, move these rocks over there and those rocks over there, and these are the 10 commandments that I'm giving you because I'm sovereign and you'll do what I say. Instead, he reveals to us, this is the path of life. This is who I am and this is who I'm asking you to be. This is what is designed for human flourishing. The reality is that rules with relationship result in freedom Pleasure, joy, and ultimate human flourishing. Friends, do you want to go on an incredible journey with Jesus? Behold Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Pick up your Bible every day. Say, Jesus, would you reveal to me as a God of goodness and grace throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as a God who has my best in mind. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you for who you are. And Lord, forgive me for getting so distracted, for thinking that, that I know the best way. I know the way that will give me the most freedom, that will give me the most joy, and not recognizing that I have a, a God of infinite knowledge and love and compassion who's given me the best possible tools to live a happy life. And who doesn't just tell me that's the direction, but who sets me free and who sets my heart free to love again through the love that you showed to us. Lord, I don't know if there's somebody here who doesn't recognize how much you love them this morning, but I pray that you would lavish your love on them on a way that they cannot deny, that they recognize you are an incredible God of love and mercy and grace. I don't know if there's somebody else here today who maybe is just just questioning, is, is the Bible really reliable? Is there something there that's really for my good? Father, I pray that they would ask you to reveal through the Holy Spirit the value of what you've given to them and the path of life and human flourishing that's revealed here. And maybe there's some of us here who are like, yeah, no problem, I keep the commandments. But it's a burden to us if we really get down to it. Maybe we sometimes want to go in a different direction. Help us to look and look and look, to open our Bibles and to say, God, reveal yourself to me as a God of infinite love who always 
puts me first, who always works for my good and stir in me a passion to live that same life towards everyone around me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.